Food Heals Nation, what have you been doing lately when it comes to truly caring for your skin? Have you tried any of the light therapy facials or the LED masks? I've shared on this show how I use lasers to completely remove my brown spots in the past, and I love anything that can help me with wrinkles or blemishes or redness or scars. I find a lot of great products on YouTube that I test out, and I've just discovered a new brand. It's called Lima, and when you see the before and afters on YouTube, you're going to be a convert too. They are changing the way that you care for your skin on actually a profoundly scientific level. This is the Lima laser. It's the world's most powerful clinic grade cosmetic laser device and the only laser FDA cleared for at home use. Why this is important is because I was spending, I'm not going to tell you how much, way too much money years ago when I was getting rid of those brown spots when I was really healing my skin. And now This same type of technology is available at home, and I'm here for it. I am so excited. So this is a near-infrared laser light that penetrates deep into the dermis, simultaneously working on your fat, muscle, and bone to give you like a non-surgical facelift. It transforms your skin. It helps skin issues like wrinkles, sagging, blemishes, pigmentation, redness, breakouts, and scars. And it does this with zero damage, zero pain, and zero downtime. And I remember the lasers that I used to do, they did have some downtime, so this is great. Make sure to check out some of the before and after photos on the website so you can see what I'm talking about. They have YouTube videos too. But the reason it's groundbreaking is it uses that near-infrared low-level light technology, which is completely cold and painless, and it's 100 times more powerful than an LED. And the craziest part is you can even use it with a full face of makeup. So check it out for yourself. Visit lima.life. L is for live. Y is for younger. M is for masterful. A is for approved, and learn more about the Lima Laser. If you're interested in trying one today, you can sign up for their newsletter. Tell them that Food Heals sent you, and please let me know if you order one. I want to hear about your results. Again, it's lima.life, L-Y-M-A dot life. Y'all, oh my God, Food Heals Nation, I just got the softest sheets and pajama set from Cozy Earth, and I had to go and get you a discount code too, so that you could experience the coziness as well. You can visit CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS, and you'll get an exclusive 35% off. So Cozy Earth, it's like your one-stop shop for what they call the luxury she deserves. So listen up, guys because this could make a great gift for that special someone, your girlfriend, your wife, the mother in your life. And don't forget, Mother's Day will be here before we know it. So get a gift for the mom or moms. Here's a nice little gift you could ask for. Anyways, let's start with the sheets to transform your sleep. The coolest thing about Cozy Earth Bedding is that it is temperature regulating. So you stay cool, which is so important when you're sleeping. Plus they are just so soft. It feels like I'm sleeping on a cloud. Plus I love the cozy earth quality and longevity promise. All products come with a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty. So incorporating cozy earth products into your self-care routine can enhance your sleep quality and just overall wellness. So Again, this is the luxury you deserve. You can treat yourself to the ultimate in comfort and indulgence with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize your self-care and sleep health. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out the Bamboo Pajama Set. It was awarded Oprah's Favorite Things in 2019, so you know it's good. I love the softness and breathability of the fabric, and it has these really great side pockets. And don't forget that by supporting our sponsors, you support this show. Head over to CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS for an exclusive 35% off, and go get your mom the luxury she deserves on Mother's Day at CozyEarth.com with promo code FOODHEALS. Food Heals Podcast, episode 177. Everyone has to ask themselves, what are my core values? What matters to me in life? If kindness or empathy or mercy or love or doing the right thing is anywhere on that list, the core value, we just cannot support animal agriculture. We really, I think, have a moral obligation to do everything that we can 
to help these animals who are so weak and vulnerable and at our mercy. We are in a position where we hold all of the power. Holistic Voice presents the Food Heals podcast with your hosts, Alison Melody and Susie Hardy. Join the Food Heals nation and learn the secrets to go from feeling unwell to healing yourself. Warning, side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, an increase in sexual activity, feelings of joy, cravings for kale and quinoa, and a spike in Tinder matches. In rare cases, people have experienced a strong desire to actually start using their $39.99 a month gym membership. If you experience any of these symptoms, Snapchat your trainer immediately. All right, welcome Food Heals Nation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Allison Melody. And I'm Susie Hardy. Our guest today is Nathan Runkle. Nathan is an outspoken advocate for animal rights and president of Mercy for Animals. His new book, also titled Mercy for Animals, exposes the plight of factory farmed animals and tells the story of the brave undercover investigators who risk their lives to uncover the truth and raise awareness of the horrors of animal agriculture. Veg News Magazine named him one of the top most 25 fascinating vegetarians, and he's been named one of the country's top 20 activists under 30. That's so hot. Nathan works. (laughs) Too bad he doesn't play for our team. That's okay. Still hot. (laughs) Nathan works tirelessly to help implement animal welfare policy changes and animal protection legislation. Mercy for Animals is an inspiring guide on how to be an effective activist and how small changes add up to a big difference. I'm so sad you missed this interview, Suze. It was so good. I know. I know. I was so bummed. So powerful. It was really powerful. And for all our LA local peeps, you can join me at Circle V. Nathan will be there. It's an incredible concert and event in downtown LA sponsored by Mercy for Animals. Nathan will tell us more about it in the show. I went last year. It was awesome. Moby gave the most incredible concert I've ever seen. And sometimes I didn't even realize how many of his songs were from my childhood like it was incredibly good. oh yeah he has got an amazing career he's an amazing artist I love his music yeah it's it's so good it's being in that room first first the event is like food and there's panel discussions you get to learn and eat it's really fun it's outdoors and he's gonna be there and again then, right yeah he's I think he's the headliner and then there's um, a concert afterwards with all these amazing artists so it's really cool So Circle V has a simple mission to promote animal rights. It appeals to vegans and non-vegans alike. This year's festival will feature live music and DJs, vegan food, beverages, beer gardens, as well as non-alcoholic kombuchas, which I just learned to love, speaker panels. I didn't used to like it, but I had to find the right one for me. Speaker panels, (laughs) a vegan vendor village, and so much more. And this festival is all about inclusiveness, spreading their message to the vegan following and also bringing animal rights issues to the masses and allowing everyone to be a part of the community and mission. I'll be there hanging out with my usual LA vegan circle. And there's a lot of people that'll be there that we've had on the podcast, like Whitney Lauritsen, Jason Robel, Nicole Dersway, Charlie Fife of Charlie's Brownies, Jackie Wasserman, Beat by Beat, Alana Levine, Kip Anderson, What the Health. And then of course, there'll be all these incredible plant-powered speakers like Rich Roll, Kat Von D, Kathy Freston. I love her book. And of course, like I said, Moby's going to perform. It's going to be epic. Come find me there. You can get tickets at circlev.com. And stay tuned. Listen all the way to the end because at the end yes. of this episode, we will have a special announcement for Food Heals Nation. It's going to make Ali sing. You know that means something big that you won't want to miss. Am I going to sing? It's you that always good. sing when you're happy. Our, our listeners know that. Okay. Well, you said special announcement, but I think it's special announcements, plural. Oops. <laughs> special <laughs> announcements. So exciting things coming in after our interview. My interview with Nathan Runkle and my guest co-host is Nicole Dersway. I'll introduce her next up on the Food Heals Podcast. The Food Heals Podcast starts now. All right, Food Heals Nation. Susie couldn't be here today, so I'm so excited to introduce today's guest co-host. She's the vegan love child of Rachel Ray and Louis C.K. You know her from many past episodes of the Food Heals podcast. She's an actress, a rapper, and a plant-powered chef who throws the best vegan pop-up brunches and dinners throughout L.A. Welcome, Nicole Dersway. What a so glad to have you back. Word. How are you guys? How are you? I know you're going to make me giggle today. So today's 
guest. He's the founder and the president of Mercy for Animals, a leading international force in the prevention of cruelty to farm animals and promotion of compassionate food choices. He's someone I've actually wanted to interview for a long time. I've had the pleasure of meeting him at the incredible Mercy for Animals Gala last year and most recently hung out at his book signing here in LA for his brand new book, also called Mercy for Animals. Welcome, Nathan Runkle. Thanks so much for having me. It's my honor. We are so glad to have you. Like I said, it's been a long time. I've been wanting to interview. I just love what you guys do. Thank you. You're welcome. So how did you get started? Tell us about Mercy for Animals and where did your passion for animal activism really begin? Yeah, I was born on a small crop farm in a village of less than 2,000 people in rural Ohio. I was slated to be a fifth generation farmer um, and my empathy and connection and respect for animals ultimately led me down a path that would ultimately culminate in me founding Mercy for Animals 18 years ago. I I guess you could say I always had a natural affinity for animals. It was our uh, dogs and cats who first um, really taught me that when it comes to a spark for life and having personalities and minds and interests and needs, but also the ability to love and feel sadness and sorrow and pain and joy all animals are equal and connected. When I was six years old, uh, it was a little rat named Caesar that I uh, rescued from a breeder who are neighbors. Um, Aww. He's slated to be uh, used in laboratory experiments. And Caesar became sort of my best friend. And he taught me that there really is no difference between companion animals like dogs and cats and animals that we uh, as a society oftentimes label as not being worthy of, of uh, consideration. So Caesar taught me that the only difference between pets and pests or animals that we consider friends or food are our perception of them. So when I was 15, there was an animal abuse case at my local high school that ultimately led me to found uh, the organization Mercy for Animals. One afternoon at our high school, the teacher of an agriculture class, um, whose name was Steve Jenkins, decided that he was going to kill some um, baby piglets on his farm. He had a large large pig operation with about 10,000 pigs. And um, he arrived to the school with this bucket of piglets that he had tried to kill. And one of the piglets was still alive. She was standing on top of all the other piglets. Um, a student in the classroom who did part-time work on Mr. Jenkins' pig farm walked over, grabbed the piglet by her hind legs, and slammed her head first into the ground in an attempt to, to kill this piglet. She was still alive. Wow. She was in horrible distress. Her skull was fractured. She was bleeding out of her mouth. A few other students in the class who witnessed this were just outraged, grabbed this dying piglet, left the classroom, ran down the hallway to the classroom of a teacher uh, named Molly Fearing, was known as being a vegetarian who cared about animals. Mm. Molly left the school with this piglet cradled in her arms, went to a veterinarian and had this piglet euthanized. There was nothing that could be done to to save this piglet. Molly's next stop was the sheriff's department where she filed an animal cruelty complaint and those charges uh, were filed and it became a big deal in this local farming community. It was in all the the, the local papers. And the first day that went to trial, all the local pig farmers rallied behind Mr. Jenkins. They didn't want animal advocates telling them what to do, essentially, in their words. Right. Um, Oh, my God. This is heart-wrenching. It it really is. And the first day of that trial, the animal cruelty charges were dismissed because slamming baby piglets headfirst into the ground, a practice known as thumping, is considered standard agricultural practice. It takes place on pig farms all over the United States and the world um, on, on a daily Disgusting. basis. God. Oh my gosh, it's terrible. And if something is considered standard agricultural practice, it is exempt from cruelty prosecution. Right. So this case illustrated to me that we needed an organization that would advocate on behalf of, of these animals, of, on, on animals used in the food industry, it was clear to me that if this was a puppy or if this was a kitten who had been slammed headfirst into the ground um, at a school, cruelty charges would have stuck. Uh, the perpetrators would have likely been 
given jail time, would have been leveled with heavy fines, would have been referred for psychiatric evaluation, or even prohibited from ever having animals again. But because it was a, a quote-unquote food animal or a farmed animal, the law didn't provide such um, protection. You guys, you know what it reminds me of? This has bothered me for a long time, and I'm totally going off topic, but did you guys see Making of a Murderer, the documentary? Mm, yeah. So everyone is like, oh, Stephen Avery was so evil because he killed the cat. Does anyone, you guys remember that? Okay. Yes, I absolutely agree. But why is he then considered a person that's probably going to murder a human being because he killed the cat when people across the U.S. at all time, I mean, across the world, are murdering these innocent animals at all time, and they're not considered that they could just go murder a human being? How is it different? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, this is one of the problems with factory farms and slaughterhouses is, you know, the, the FBI uses cruelty to animals as one of the top three indicators on if someone is going to become a serial killer or mm-hmm. engage in acts of violence against against people. So it, it can be, you know, a sign of these sort of antisocial violent behaviors. With factory farming and with slaughterhouses, we are essentially creating environments where otherwise good, decent people who take these jobs oftentimes out of desperation. Many of the workers in slaughterhouses are undocumented immigrants. They're doing Mm -hmm. society's dirty work, the dehumanizing, dangerous work that nobody wants. But in the process of doing that, they're losing a part of their humanity and their soul and their spirit. I mean, you can imagine if your job was to slit the throat of animals for eight hours a day, what that would do to your psyche. And I talk in the book about the Sinclair effect, which was this um, notion that was put forward by Upton Sinclair, the author of The Jungle, over 100 years ago, that predicted that in communities where slaughterhouses are based, there would be higher rates of violent crime. And in fact, the data supports this, and a group of psychologists took a, a deeper look and found that around the U.S., in communities where large portions of the population are employed by slaughterhouses, that rates of domestic violence are higher, rates of homicides are higher, and other violent crimes, and many of the, these homicides being carried out in the same way in which animals are slaughtered in slaughterhouses. So you know, these are symptoms of people suffering from PTSD, or more specifically, perpetration induced traumatic stress. Mm. Um, So, you know, to me, the question is, do slaughterhouses have a place in a civilized and ethical and moral and kind and peaceful society? To me, the the answer is pretty, pretty clear. Yeah, me too. I agree with you 100%. So I totally sidetracked from your story. (laughs) So go back to um, telling us about like how how you formed these opinions and what happened. Yeah, so I mean, that the animal abuse case at the at my local high school was the watershed moment that led me to, to start the organization. And, you know, this was 18 years ago, I had no money, no idea what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> I was in a village of, like I said, 2000 people, wasn't even old enough to drive. So it was really started with just a burning desire to right a wrong and give a voice to animals. And, you know, over the years, the organization progressed and started doing investigative work um, at factory farms in Ohio, um, first using a tactic known as open rescues, which is really a combination of civil disobedience, animal rescue, and investigative work all wrapped up into one, consists of going into factory farms at night, not damaging any property, but rescuing animals who may be thrown away in trash cans while they're still alive or mangled in cage wire or suffering from broken bones. And of course, these animals are just viewed as disposable commodities um, on these on these huge factory farms. There's no individual veterinary care that's provided to birds, um, for example, used for egg production. So we would go in, document the, the horrible conditions, directly rescue birds that we found, and then we would go to the, the media and we would get this information out to the public. We would ask for animal cruelty charges to be filed, though no action was ever taken. So this was sort of the the early days of the organization. And then around 2007, 
we started doing employment-based investigations, sending people into factory farms, getting hired, wired with pinhole-sized hidden cameras, and working sometimes for months on end to document what happens to these animals and use that evidence to push for legal and, and corporate policy change. I mean, this is incredible that you started this organization with nothing and you have built this huge movement. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, look, I, I am one person in the organization. I've definitely been with the organization since day one. But the story of Mercy for Animals, the organization, is, is one that is paved by thousands of people, people who volunteer their time, whether it's showing up at a protest or a march or passing out information, people who share information from the organization on social media, and people who make donations, big and small, to fund these investigations and Mm -hmm. fund this grassroots work. I am just so grateful to be able to do work that I'm so passionate about, but also to work with a community of such generous and selfless people on a daily basis. Nathan, with these uh, first activism kind of things, you said you were going in and, and documenting and kind of rescuing these animals out of these situations. Were you one the one of the people that's going in there physically and doing that? That's right. Yeah, I started doing these investigations when I was 17. So over the course of time now, I've been to dozens of factory farms, not only in the United States, but around the world. Um, so yeah, I was crawling through manure pits and um, you know broken cage wire and documenting all of this on my own and, and, and all of this firsthand, which really instilled in me the a real sense of urgency and how urgent this situation is, how massive it is, how serious it is, and how very real it is. You know, it can be easy to read about these things or see videos of them and be appalled, but it's another thing to really stand there and smell the waste of millions of animals um, and, and the dust and the dander and hear the cries of, of animals in, in these these places. It's something that really haunts you and sticks yeah. with you forever. I mean, that was my question. I was like, how do you cope with that emotionally and kind of detox that pain when you're done? It's it's amazing that you're strong enough to do it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I think it's one that goes even beyond just what investigators themselves face. And, and investigators, myself included over the years, certainly face emotional trauma from the work that they do. But there's also secondary trauma for people that, that watch the videos. And I, I think a lot of animal advocates do suffer from secondary trauma when you're constantly advocating on behalf of these animals and, and showing people the, the images And I think it's important as a movement that we recognize that this is real and that self-care is really vital. Um, We have such a high burnout rate with animal advocates. And I think it's because if if you don't take care of yourself mentally, physically, emotionally, um, it's easy to, to get sad and depressed and angry and frustrated and sort of lose hope in humanity. And I think we have to really make a conscious effort of remembering that we're doing this work out of love. It's out of compassion. And while we are against cruelty to animals, we are for kindness. And that's really at the root of what we do and why we do it. So for me, self-care means everything from having a therapist um, to talk about what's going on to exercising, doing yoga, meditation, Um, cycling, spending time in nature, traveling, spending time with friends and family. You know, while there is a lot of darkness in the world and a lot of suffering and cruelty, there's also a lot of light and hope and joy and love and beauty. Um, And so I think it's really important to celebrate that um, and and just live from a place of, of gratitude. I could not agree more. Yes, have an attitude of gratitude. That's the only way we can get through these lives when we're facing so much oppression and adversity and all of these things. And I um I read aloud the prologue to your book to a friend, and I couldn't get through it. I started crying. It's so powerful, and I haven't been where you've been, but I felt like I was there. You talk about the smells when you open the doors, and you talk about the animals who are mangled in their cages and and helping them just to get up so that they could not be stuck. And it's 
heartbreaking. And I'm already vegan, but if I had read that, you know, if someone reads that right now and they're not, I don't think I would ever eat eggs again. It really was that that powerful. And it was just a few pages. <laughs> the prologue is not even a full chapter. And it had me. Like I was I was riveted and 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 disgusted and and sad and and I felt empowered to do something. So I feel like your book is going to be very, very powerful. So you're on your book tour. Um, tell us what really inspired you to write the book and tell us what's in the book that really stands out to you. Yeah, well, well, thank you for that. You know, I, I wrote the book because I want to inspire people to take action on behalf of animals. And if that action at the starting point is to just simply change your own lifestyle and move towards compassionate food choices, towards a vegan diet, that is a huge win for animals and something that I really celebrate and that that is helping make the world a better place. And I hope for people that maybe are already making humane food choices that the book inspires them to do more and to find their unique, authentic voice of how to advocate on behalf of animals. You know, I'm excited to share my story with the world, but I'm even more excited in the book to share the story of our undercover investigators, um, people like Pete and Liz and Cody. These are really the unsung heroes of the animal protection movement. These are people who operate in the shadows, who do this work, not for fame or glory or recognition, but they do it to help animals. And they risk their, their lives in certain situations. They risk their physical safety. They risk their emotional well-being so that they can shine a light into some of the darkest places in our society, inside of factory farms, inside of slaughterhouses. So I think this book is really the first one ever written that gives such a detailed, personal look at what life is like for an undercover investigator, some of the trials and tribulations that they they face, but also the hardships of having to leave animals behind that are suffering and know that they can affect larger change, societal change, policy change by documenting what's happening now to push for changes later. And I tell a number of stories in the book about really world-changing successes that have been driven by the work of these brave undercover investigators. I also tell the story of individual animals, some of whom I have rescued uh, at egg farms. I tell the story of Hope, a hen that I pulled out of a trash can at an egg farm in Ohio. But there are also stories of animals who are never given names, who are only given ear tag numbers. You know, while we weren't able to get them out of these horrible factory farms, my hope is that their stories reaching a large audience can can help continue to drive change. Um, I'm also really excited to tell the stories of people in the innovation space. You know, at the end of the day, I have a lot of optimism and hope and excitement about the future. And part of that is because of what's happening in cellular agriculture, growing meat outside of animals. Uh, it's meat without the murder. I'm um, taking single cells from animals that are self-replicating and uh, giving them oxygen and sugar and a growth medium and putting them in bioreactors and literally culturing meat. The work that's being done in this space by people like Uma Valetti, who was a cardiologist who saw this um, technology being used in the medical profession, decided to leave his lucrative career to start a company called Memphis Meats, which is one of the premier clean meat companies. These are people that give me a lot of hope for the future. And you know, if you look at, for example, what got overworked, exhausted horses off of the bustling streets, it wasn't just campaigns by animal welfare activists, it was innovation. It was the invention of the Model T, you know, nearly a hundred years ago. So I, I think that cellular agriculture, for example, will be the same thing for food as the Model T was for transportation in the sense that when we have alternatives that are better, cheaper, faster, more efficient, the outdated options become literally that, the outdated options. So I, I think that what's happening with clean meat, but also with plant-based 
meats. Uh, you know, if you look at Beyond Meat and the love Beyond Meat, so amazing. <laughs> you know, these the, these are people who um, are doing the work that can not only end factory farming as we know it, but really help save our planet. You know, we're moving towards 10 billion people on this planet by 2050, and we cannot sustain ourselves at the current rate. And animal agriculture is not only cruel, but it's just so inefficient. We we have to change course. So I'm excited to share the stories of some of these innovators in the food space in the book as well. And so going back to the animal free meat, it's essentially cells that create meat without factory farming, without degradation to the environment. Do you think that people will eat this? Do you think, I mean, obviously you do, but do you think that there will be animosity towards it and people say, well, no, I want my cows or whatever? How do you think that'll go? I think that there's always a transition period anytime that something new is introduced to the market space. But I think that humans are incredibly adaptable and our views and opinions are very malleable. So I think that once this reaches the market and people see that it is healthier in the sense that traditional animal products, this is incredibly filthy environments. You know, animals are defecating on factory farms, at slaughterhouses, you know, so much of the chicken meat, for example, is is coated in feces. You have Camelobacter, E. coli, Salmonella, that is in so many meat products because of the way it's produced. Clean meat, as the name implies, is healthier because you're not facing those same pathogens. So I think it is a superior way of producing the product. Um, and, and I think that's part of why it's important to show people just how cruel and inhumane and unsustainable traditional animal meat is because, you know, it's it's something that any ethical or moral person would certainly support, but anyone that really just cares about their own health is going to support as well. So I think that that people will really embrace it fully once it comes to market. I have a question for you guys. Would you guys eat it? I would have it. I have actually eaten it. Oh, okay. So how does it taste? I talk, I talk in the book about um, my involvement with the world's first clean meatball um, produced by Memphis Meats. Memphis Meats also pr- produced the world's first chicken strip and the world's first duck cutlet made out of clean meat. Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very small piece that I had. It, and it had been 16 years since I had eaten meat from right. animal cells. But I mean, yeah, it's real meat. So it tastes the same. It's uh, it quite remarkable. The reason why I don't know is because I, and Nathan, you probably know this, the way that they're getting these original cells to start creating these meats out of, is that done in a humane way? Yeah. So, I mean, you essentially have what some people would, would consider like an Adam and Eve type of uh, <laughs> like origin cows or chickens or pigs, for example. And um, <laughs> this, is, this is essentially done with a harmless biopsy. So the animals aren't killed for the initial cells. In theory, these could be rescued animals that are living at an animal sanctuary somewhere. So, Nicole, what do you think? Well, here's my – I think it's great for people that aren't vegan and this is an awesome solution, I think. I don't know if I would eat it because the reasons why I don't eat it aren't only because of the – like it's it's inhumane, you know, because that would solve the problem, right? It's not inhumane. So if that was the only reason why, then I suppose I would. But I also just – we have tons of cancer and, and problems in my family, so – I still don't know that I would eat it because based on the research that I've done, I've come to believe that if I reduce or eliminate animal products uh, in my diet, that I'll reduce my risk for cancer. So because of that, I probably still wouldn't eat it. But um, I think it's great that it's out there. Do you guys think that we'll see the end of factory farming in our lifetime? I think we're going to have to. Yeah. Awesome. Yay. (laughs) Optional. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I mean, as as I said, just with the rapid growth in human population in the strain on resources we're going to have to if we're going to still be around as a species and if we're still going to have a livable planet will everyone be totally vegan i'm sure that there'll still be pockets of the, of the world where people are raising animals and eating them in some capacity but i think there's there's no doubt that the vast vast majority of animal agriculture and factory farming will be replaced with cellular agriculture or plant-based 
alternatives. Um, it's really the only the only viable path forward. And time is running out, and that's why this is is so urgent. Um, we need to be proactive in addressing it. Yeah. The problem that I see is that our government isn't recognizing that factory farming is a much larger problem than driving an SUV, and they don't care about that either. But you know what I mean? And so how close are companies like Memphis Meats to making this mainstream and really getting in front of the people so that we can make the right choices and we can influence the government, you know, everything like that? Well, Memphis Meats says that they plan on having entirely clean meat, 100% clean meat products on the shelf for consumers by 2021. Hampton Creek, another um, company that I talk about in the book, they are also working on clean meat. And they say that within the next year, they plan on having hybrid products on the market, which would be part clean meat and part plant-based meat alternatives um, mixed Mm. together. So that likely may be the way in which we start to see clean meat products um, entering the marketplaces through this. Do you find that like as far as converting people, some people, you, you know, they're desensitized to the inhumane way that we treat animals or they just, it's not that they're desensitized, is that they're blind to it. They don't look at it. They've never seen it. They don't want to look. I used to be. Yeah, we all used to be, right? I was so scared. So it's like almost like how do you reach these people? And I guess health is the, it is like a selfish thing that you can do to like kind of entice them because it's the only thing that directly affects them is to really focus on the health. Do you find that that's like the most effective way to kind of bridge people over is to focus on the health benefits or? Well, you know, I think everyone's motivated by something different. Um, Health can certainly be a very compelling conversation to have with people, uh, especially older individuals who really are at a point in their life where they may be experiencing some of the health effects of their diet and lifestyle. A lot of young people, which are really sort of the fastest growing segment of the population who are embracing a vegan diet, um, most young people aren't really thinking about heart disease or osteoporosis or you know cancers yet. So I think for a lot of young people, it is an ethical and, and moral choice that they make. And it's not driven by health, but I think by others, it absolutely is um, driven by health. And I think, you know, with the what the health documentary on Netflix and Forks Over Knives, there are a lot of films that are now really reaching the mainstream that make uh, a compelling case for a plant-based diet. Sort of on this point, it, there was a study done that was quite interesting. They, they took two different groups of individuals. They put them in a room and they gave one group sort of nuts and seeds and vegan food as snacks and the other room they had bologna and cheese and animal products and then they asked them this was just sort of uh, in the background and then they asked the groups their opinions on animal cognition and sentience and do animals matter and do they deserve protection in the group that just happened to have the vegan food given to them in the room scored much higher on their rates about animal sentience and cognition and, and deserving protection than the group that were feasting on meat while they were being asked those questions, which means that the people that do maybe embrace a plant-based diet for health reasons find themselves being much more open and sympathetic and compassionate towards animals because I think they're no longer in a place where they feel that they need to justify what they're doing or they need to you know, compartmentalize their compassion to protect their habits or behavior. It's quite interesting. I can definitely relate to that last thing that you said. Just uh, even with my own journey, it started out as a health journey for me. And then after I had already made those choices, then I started being like brave enough to look at it from a compassion standpoint and then feeling very passionate about that. But I think I really didn't even dive into that until I was already into the lifestyle And mostly just because I understand, I mean, talk about PTSD and all that stuff. My psyche is very delicate. I mean, I can't even watch scary movies. So the fact that I would willingly expose myself to this information and it might be graphic and I wouldn't be able to, like, I was just so scared. (laughs) I I was able to expose myself to the information once I switched over. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that the, the study sort of um, indicates that. So, you know, for, for us at Mercy for Animals, we, we are an animal protection organization. So certainly our messaging is, is largely focused on compassion and helping animals. And while we do these hard-hitting investigations to, to, sh- to really show people what they support when they, they choose to eat meat, Let's do a lot of um, work that's focused on the how. You know, it's one thing to to show people the why of changing their lifestyle. It's it's, it's just as important, if not more important, to talk about the the how to do this. And that's why we have our chooseveg.com website. We have you know cook, vegan cooking videos that we produce because many people want to adopt a healthy, compassionate diet. They just don't know where to start. They're overwhelmed. We are creatures of habit and, and comfort, and most of us are not raised vegetarian or vegan. Many people don't have the slightest idea of what their day-to-day would, would consist of. So showing people that it's progress over perfection, leaning into diet change, even if you start out with Meatless Monday, anything that pushes you in the, the right direction is um, something that should be embraced. Absolutely. And that's how I started to, you know, I started with realizing the detrimental effects on my health that animal-based products were having. And making that switch made me healthier. I also have cancer in my family, lost both of my parents in my 20s, two long battles with cancer, realized I had to change everything so that I didn't suffer the same fate. And then I found out about animal agriculture and my mind was blown. I was like, I had no idea how bad it was until I was exposed to things like what you guys are doing. And then I was able to, and I took baby steps too, in terms of like giving up one thing at a time, starting with a meatless Monday, all of that stuff. And slowly but surely I came, I actually went too far for a while, to be honest with you. I was like, okay, I have to be like a raw person who only eats raw vegan fruits and vegetables. And that was too extreme. And I realized I needed cooked food and I had to come back. But it's like finding that balance, right? Figuring out what works for you and living that compassionate lifestyle. Also, when you change the way you think about your food, things change, right? You get healthier. When you believe that you're eating food to nourish you and to nourish the planet and loving your food and knowing that it didn't come from a place of abuse and 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 terror, you know, the these animals are terrorized to death. Do you think that those hormones aren't in your meat, in your food, you know? Yeah, I mean, these, as you said, these these animals live and die in fear. You know, it's not just physical torment that these animals face. These are thinking individuals. I was talking to, to Cody, one of our investigators, and you know, it, th- there are stories of bravery and courage and love that happen every day um, behind the closed doors of these factory farms. And Cody told me the story uh, when he was working at a pig factory farm in Pennsylvania a few years ago. And he, uh, on his first day, he walked into the shed where the pregnant sows had just given birth and into these farrowing crates. These are crates that are about two feet wide and the, the sows can't even turn around their their babies can reach them but they can't really comfort them in any other way he he walked into the shed one morning and noticed that one of the the sows had gotten out of her crate and gotten all of her pigs um piglets out behind her and she was roaming the walkway but he then noticed that there were two other sows with their babies that were also running free. And after some investigation, they realized that what had happened was this mother sow had figured out how to use her tongue to unpin this uh, latch that was keeping the door shut in her cage. And after she freed herself, she went around and freed these two other sows. um, Oh, wow. It was zero. Not a, I know. You know, it, was, it, it absolutely was heroism, and it was the act of love. You know, definition of love being this loyal and unselfish, benevolent concern for the good of another, and yeah. that is exactly what this action was of self liberation. You know, she had the intelligence to figure out how to do this, the foresight to develop a plan, the will for freedom, the heroism to help others, and this compassion for them. So this is this is happening on factory farms all the time. And in fact, 
the workers at this farm told Cody that this has happened before, that pigs do this, and that once they figure out how to do it, they have to kill the pigs. And they killed this brave girl. Um, They took a captive bolt gun and they shot her in the head. Oh, my God. You guys, oh my God, I have chills from that story. Yeah, it's, um, this is, you know, this is reality of factory farming. And like you said, these animals are in fear. They know that they're going to die. They watch other animals die before them. They can smell the blood and hear the screams. And just like conversation earlier about the workers having PTSD in slaughterhouses, I think that everyone has to ask themselves, what are my values? What are my core values? What matters to me in life? And if kindness or empathy or mercy or love or doing the right thing is anywhere on that list, the core value, we just cannot support animal agriculture. And we really, uh, I think, have a moral obligation to do everything that we can to help these animals who are so weak and vulnerable and at our mercy. We are in a position where we hold all of the power and how we choose to exercise that power, whether we use that to exploit and kill or whether we use that to help and nurture and rescue and protect, I think says a lot about who we are as people. It says a lot about our humanity. And this is a lot about the world that we want to live in. Oh my God, Nathan, I wish we were, I wish you were in the studio. I just want to give you a hug and be like, yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and I know you guys do your hidden heroes, Gallo, and you honor all of those undercover investigators who are just doing incredible, incredible things. And I encourage um, Food Heals Nation, anyone listening, you know, subscribe to Mercy for Animals, go to their events, see how you can volunteer. I'm sure Nathan's going to tell us all about that before we go. But I did want to ask you one more thing about your book. You talk about there's a chapter in your book about coming out as a gay man at 18. And I'm just wondering, what kind of similarities do you see between LGBT rights and animal rights and and the suppression of of our society? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to me, if you look at oppression in our society around the world, it really is a matter of abuse of power. Mm -hmm. And it is a matter of those with power exploiting and demeaning bullying or killing those who don't have power. And that is the situation in terms of our relationship with animals. And the other piece of this is this notion of otherness. You know, anytime that we separate groups of individuals into us and them, we can oftentimes see that those who are in the the group of power start to exploit those who don't. And and while, of course, there are differences between men and women, people that, that are from different nations, there are differences, but in every way that matters, we are equal and we are the same. And it is yes. the same with animals. Animals are different from us in many ways, but they are like us in every way that matters. And yes. we are the same in every way that matters. So to me, growing up gay, I was bullied, I was harassed, I was called a faggot before I even knew what the word meant. Mm. I was assaulted just because of who I was, not because of the content of my character, but because of how I was perceived as being other than and being less Mm -hmm. than. To me, that really sensitized my heart to the plight of the underdog or in the case of our society, the under pig or under chicken or under cow, um, those individuals who are marginalized and persecuted and exploited just because they were unfortunate enough to be born as a species that we don't value. Mm-hmm. And to me, that is why there why there are similarities between oppression and all of the forms that it takes and why... I am so passionate about speaking on behalf of animals within the LGBTQ community. Yeah, separation is an illusion. We've created it. There is no separation. We are all one. It sounds like airy fairy, but it's truth. And it's it's mm-hmm. we've created these divisions, mm-hmm. and they're obnoxious and ridiculous. Yeah. And so I know we have to wrap up soon, but tell us more about if someone wants to get involved. 
whether it's with Mercy for Animals or something in their own community, what can we do? People are going to hear this episode and go, what can I do? I want to make a difference. What do you recommend? It's almost 2018. People are starting new patterns, new habits. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Well, I mean, the, the first thing that you can do, and I talk about all this in the book, is ask yourself how you can live your own values to the fullest. Um, how can you embody love and compassion and respect? And to me, one of the first ways of doing that is through our food choices. Our food choices are incredibly powerful. So adopting a vegan diet is one of the best things that we can do to live those values and help our planet, help our own health and, and help animals. Now, beyond that, how do we then be more proactive in driving change. Well, I talk in the book about simple things like getting involved in the political arena for animals. Um, I believe that animal rights is a social justice issue and that those who are being abused and exploited can't protest on their own behalf. They can't lobby for new laws. So they depend on us to do that for them. So I talk about some basic initiatives that we can all get involved with on a, on a political level for animals. I also talk about simple things that we can do uh, through social media. We live in a very connected world now where we can use our voices and our platforms through social media, for example, not only to spread information within our own circle of influence, but also to hold companies accountable and demand change. And I talk about a number of examples of huge global policies that we've been able to drive largely because individuals took to social media and um, held these companies accountable. At the same time, I also encourage people to find their own unique voice that uses their unique perspective, their unique talents and resources and connections to drive change for animals. And I tell the story of a former uh, executive from Burger King who sort of saw the light and used his experience in the food industry to start a plant-based company that has spared countless animals from factory farms because of these products. I talk about a vegan race car driver who uses her platform to promote plant-based eating to millions of NASCAR fans. I talk about a former cattle rancher who turned vegan who uses his unique experience to um, be an animal advocate. So whether you're in the business arena or you're a teacher or you're an artist, there are ways of using what you know to drive change. And I think that diversity is the strength of any movement. But I also talk about the importance of making financial contributions to organizations doing this work. And that's because money is energy and it's not inherently good or bad. It's how it's spent. And taking on the nearly $1 trillion meat industry, global meat industry, this is a big initiative that takes resources. It takes a lot of investigations. It takes a lot of corporate campaigning. It takes a lot of events and education initiatives and policy change work. And Mercy for Animals and so many other organizations rely on that generous support from, from individuals to wage these campaigns. And I talk about people in the book who have adopted an earn-to-give mindset as their form of activism. People who had considered leaving their businesses or careers to become full-time animal advocates, but instead decided to really make more of their uh, business talents, earn more money, donate more money, and in some cases now have you know multiple full-time people that are employed because of their generosity. So there's a lot of different ways of looking at activism. And I think this is where the sort of personal soul searching comes in um, to find out what you believe is the best way to have the biggest impact. And I think that's really important too, is to think about this from an effective altruist mindset. How do we do the most good, reduce the most suffering, spare the most lives with the time, energy, and resources that we have? You know, Mercy for Animals, for example, for every dollar that someone donates, we spare one animal from ever being born onto a factory farm through diet change that we drive. And over 100 animals' lives are improved um, as a result of corporate policy change. So that's from $1. So it's, it's important for people just to, to think about that because not all, you know, actions are created equal in terms of the amount of impact that they drive. It can be easy to 
want to help the individual animals that are most visible to us, which are oftentimes dogs and cats, but it's the 9 billion farmed animals, 3,000 farmed animals to every one companion animal used and killed in our society every year. The number. Oh my God, I did not realize that stat. Yeah, it's almost 300 animals every second killed for food. Oh These are the invisible ghosts in our, our, our food machine, um, but they obviously have minds and personalities just like dogs and cats, and they deserve the same protection. Um, so that's, that's why organizations like Mercy for Animals... Um, focus exclusively um, on helping them. You guys are amazing. I'm like getting chills every time you talk, right, Nicole? It's like, oh. I know. <sighs> I have nothing but, uh, to say. I'm like, what? I love it. I just let, him, just let the man speak. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's so funny, you guys. So I'm a, I'm a, what would I say I am? A gala whore. So I go to all <laughs> the events, okay, in Southern California. And um, there's a couple There's a couple of us that do. And so you guys are incredible at sharing these stories. You put your hidden heroes on the stage. You have these videos. You have these speakers. You have, uh, you know, artists come and perform that are absolutely incredible. And I donate all every dollar I have at those things because they get you nice and liquored up, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> to do that. And then you have to raise your bidding, what's it called, thing, if you want to uh, donate. And so they start real high. So they're like, you know, who wants to start at 500K? And I'm like, well, obviously, I, I'm, I can't bid. So I already spent a lot for this ticket and, you know, I'm good. I, I, don't, I did my donation. By the time they get down to like 2,000, me and my friends are like, okay, okay, oh, 500. Yep, here you go. What else do you need? Like, oh, who's this going to fund? Okay. They tell you, you guys tell us, you know, where it's going, who you're going to fund, who it's helping, just like you just did right now. And you, we are crying in our seats, like, oh my god! And so, I really do appreciate hearing that, like, how much the dollar really does do. And sometimes it feels like it's not enough to give a little money. But if I have a little money and no time, I will give my money. If I have more time and no money, I will give my time. Yeah, so, you know, people should not feel like giving money is is not a true form of activism. It really is. Um, it drives so much of this change, and and without any of those resources, we wouldn't be able to to do investigations or or, or drive so much of, of the progress that we're seeing. So thank you, you know, for for what you, you do and, and what you're able to give. It's something that people should feel very fulfilled and very proud of. Um, it really means a lot. Absolutely. So Nathan, where can everyone find you online, stalk you on Instagram, buy your book, all that good stuff? Yeah, um, I want to give one more shout out. Uh, we have a vegan music festival called Circle Ooh. V. Oh, yes, I went last year. Circle V, um, yes. And so this will be the second year for the event. Um, it's going to be in Los Angeles, downtown LA this year, November 18th. Um, people can still get tickets at circlev.com. And it's bigger, better than ever before. We've got Waka Flocka Flame performing, Moby, Dream Car. Rory, Reggie Watts, others that are being announced, speakers include Amazing. Pat Von D, I'll be there, Ingrid Newkirk, Kathy Preston, um, Kip Anderson from Cowspiracy and yep. uh, What the Hell, Rich Roll, um, just Miyoko's from Miyoko's Cheese. I love her. Yes, a lot of people we've interviewed too. Jeff I love will all be of them. there, um, Ethan Brown from Beyond Meat. Um, Bruce Friedrich from the Good Food Institute. It's just everyone's going to be there. Dozens of vegan food vendors, um, beer garden, everything that you can imagine. So I want to give a shout out to that. It'll be just really fantastic event. So I hope that everyone will join us on November 18th for Circle V. Again, you can still get tickets at circlev.com. Uh, people can find Mercy for Animals online at mercyforanimals.org. On all the social media channels, it's at Mercy for Animals. Uh, and you can find me personally on all the social media channels at Nathan Runkle. And the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available through Apple, Kindle, Audible, um, really everywhere that books are sold. Well, congratulations on the book. It's amazing. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys so much for having me. Who else wants a free, fresh bottle of olive oil shipped straight to their door? 
Let me back up. The first time I went to Italy, I finally tasted real olive oil for the first time. It's not that I had never had olive oil before, of course, in the States, but the difference was I was having olive oil made fresh from olives that were growing on the property in Ravello off the Amalfi Coast. It was an experience I will never forget, and I ended up shipping like six bottles of it home because I couldn't bear to go back to store-bought processed olive oil. Well, the same thing happened to TJ Robinson. He's also known as the olive oil hunter. He learned that olive oil packs the most flavor and the healthiest nutrients when it's fresh from the farm. And that's the problem with your typical like supermarket olive oil the olive oil is not fresh. They can sit on the shelf for months, years, growing stale. And that's why I'm so excited that I now get my olive oil direct from small award-winning farms. Thanks to TJ, who I just did an olive oil tasting with, which was so fun. I absolutely fell in love with their vibrant, fresh, grassy flavors. They're totally delicious. They're great on veggies, pasta, salad, you name it. And TJ has his fresh pressed olive oil club and food heals nation he will send you a full-size bottle worth 39 dollars of one of the world's finest most artisanal olive oils fresh from the latest harvest but he's only going to charge you one dollar to help cover shipping there's no commitment to buy anything now or ever it's his gift to food heals nation so you can get your free 39 dollar bottle for just one dollar shipping taste the difference taste the freshness you can go to get fresh 323.com. That's getfresh323.com. You'll get your free bottle and you'll pay $1 for shipping. Getfresh323.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, Food Heals Nation. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Nathan. Don't forget to come hang out with me and all your favorite plant-powered people at Circle V. Get tickets at circlev.com. But now. Our special announcements. They're more like teases. She just, well, that wasn't singing, but you did kind of hit a note. Oh, oh, I did sing. I didn't even mean to. I forgot (laughs) that you said that. See, I know you this well. I know what makes you sing. Oh my gosh. Anything that makes me happy makes me sing. Why do I do that? I don't know. Don't make me sing. Because you're fun. Don't make me dance. Does anyone know that reference? SNL? Okay. So first up, (laughs) we want to get you excited about our holiday gift guide, which is- I'm excited. did, Did I just sing? Holiday oh my God, guide. did we both just say? <laughs> Wait, let me hear your gift guide again. Holiday gift guide. Oh, now, now you made me nervous and it warbled. Don't make me do that again. <laughs> okay, I our won't gift make guide is, Our gift guide is coming to you in early December, but it's never too early to start shopping for the ones you love. And if you know us, you know we're not too big on the whole consumerism or buying people things that they don't need. I don't think that's what the holidays are about. But we know you're probably going to get some people some gifts, if not some gifts for yourself. So we're putting together an extraordinary list for you with discount codes on our favorite organic vegan products so you'll know what you're buying is good. So starting next week, we'll slowly be revealing some of our favorite products that will improve your health, the health of your loved ones, and will help you glide into the new year effortlessly. Oh, you said that so beautifully. And one of the products... I feel like a a magic god... A fairy godmother. You are a fairy godmother. I feel like a fairy godmother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you technically are a fairy godmother because one of the products we're going to be recommending is from you. That's true. So stay tuned, Food Heals Nation, to find out what Susie is going to offer you for your holiday, for your stocking stuffers, right? Total awesome stocking stuffers. Yes. I love, I love your product. It's amazing. So Food Heals Nation, you have no idea what's coming, but we're going to tell you, I promise. (laughs) So don't miss our November and December episodes where we'll be telling you exactly how to use our favorite discount codes and how to download our holiday gift guide And one last announcement. I told you we had multiple. I'm really excited to announce that for a limited time, I'm going to open up my consulting services to Food Heals Nation. What? (laughs) Thank you for that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Oh my God. So I don't know how much Food Heals Nation knows about my side hustle. I mean, this is my side hustle. My other side hustle, I do a lot. Let's let's just say I do a lot. She does a but, lot of hustle, folks. I watch it all the time. So I will just say that I am a consultant in the world of film production, in the world of podcasting, and in the world of building your wellness business. And I've never announced it on the podcast because I had uh, too many clients. So <laughs> understandably, I couldn't open it up. But I've had a lot of people blossom this year, take their businesses to the next level. And so I have space for new clients. So if you're listening and you have a transformational story and you have an idea that you want to turn into a business, or maybe you have a thriving business and you want to up level it, I'm going to help you with my program, Conscious Consulting. And folks, let me just tell you, this lady knows what she's doing. She is a social media master. She is the reason that Food Heals Nation is what it is. I am proud to just be able to ride along and do what I do and join her. But she does a lot of the behind the scenes work, like the wizard uh, in the Wizard of Oz. And she, she can help you do the same thing. <laughs> wizard, was- wizardess. Was it no? Was wizardess. Yeah, I'll be a wizardess. Okay. Wizardess. Well, thank you. That was really sweet. I didn't it's ask true. you for a testament. No, thank you me. didn't, but it's true. So I'm going to give you lots more information in the coming weeks on how you can become a part of my conscious consulting program. So go to foodhealsnation.com slash work with me and you can see what I'm all about and you can send me an email, shoot me a call, we'll jump on the phone and see if it's a fit for you in your business. So... That's all for tonight, right, Suze? Do we have any other announcements? Okay. We've got lots more exciting things for you, Food Heals Nation. Holiday discount codes, products from Susie, consulting with Allie. Lots coming up. Stay tuned. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life. In rare cases, women have experienced a strong desire to stop asking their boyfriends if they look fat in this dress. If you experience any of these symptoms, post a selfie to Instagram immediately. (laughs) 